Live from Jerusalem, this is the Yishai Fleischer Show. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show here on Voice of Israel. So great to be with you. In studio with me right now is one of the leading intellectuals in the Jewish world, certainly in the English-speaking world, and his name is Issy Liebler. I owe this man a lot. Issy Liebler has done things that helped me be here today. He may not know it, but he has been, he was extremely instrumental in helping Soviet Jewry be freed from that gigantic prison, which was called the Soviet Union. He has in the past served as president of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, and he was the chairman of the governing board of the World Jewish Congress. He was one of the pioneering global leaders in the campaign on behalf of Soviet Jewry, as I mentioned, and played a role in the lead-up to the Israeli diplomatic relations with India and China. Therefore, you understand that uh, Issy is, is the kind of person who's, who's connecting Israel to a broader world. And that's actually what uh, is bringing him to our studios today, because he's written an article in the New York Times, which has gotten a lot of traction, called Israel Must Put Security First. And it's an interesting mix of what we would call here in Israel left and right. On the one hand, strong Israel, as in the title says, you have to put security first. On the other hand, still pining for a, um, for a two-state solution. Issy Liebler moved to Israel in 1999. He came to Jerusalem. And then he emerged as one of the, as I said, leading global English language commentators. He writes prolifically in the Jerusalem Post and in the Hebrew daily Israel Hayom. He's got his own blog. It's called Candidly Speaking from Jerusalem, and he's in studio right now. Issy, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. <clears throat> thanks so much for your work on behalf of Soviet Jewry on a personal level. Tell me a little bit about uh, helping a million Jews be freed from prison. It's a long story, and I don't want to bore you, but it started in 1959. In 1957, <laughs> the first time I came to Israel, I was, in a sense, recruited um, and asked to play a role in this, and... I had always been passionately interested in the question of Soviet Jewry. And uh, on my return, um, I began starting a campaign which led ultimately uh, to the United Nations, to this issue being raised by Australia at the United Nations. It was a great campaign within the Jewish community and it was historic. It was the first time that the issue had been raised and a call for the right of Aliyah and all these things. As you can imagine... I was vilified by the left and by the Soviet Union. In 1965, I published a booklet called Soviet Jewry and Human Rights, which was extracts of the way the Jews were being treated in the Soviet Union, but based on Soviet sources, which caused such a clamour that the Communist Party of Australia became divided over it. And as a result, I was sent overseas, lecturing of all places, because I was anything but a left-winger, I can assure you, to left-wing groups trying to convince them of the need to become involved in Soviet Jewry. That led then to the next step. My company, I was in a large travel company, was mistakenly selected, I think, from their point of view, to represent Australia at the Olympic Games with their travel arrangements, and the Soviets had to give me visas. For four years, I had access to the Soviet Union uh, under extraordinarily trying circumstances, an Australian embassy car taking me from Refusnik to Refusnik, doing negotiations over the so-called uh, Olympic Games, which were never to be because we boycotted them at the end, uh, and having KGB following me everywhere and enormous strains and stresses. But I was in touch and made relation, had relations with the refuseniks then. I was one of the main 
people involved and directly in touch with it, with sort of access. And it changed my life. And if you talk about Aliyah, I think one of the things that convinced me that the only place to come was Israel was the experience I had with these extraordinary people and the nests that I saw enveloping as these people from nowhere had suddenly became Jewish and their Jewish origins brought them back to their own people. They were extraordinary, talented people. Uh, I, I regard them as the greatest heroes of our generation. They came to Israel and many of them just submerged and were ignored. But these were the people that changed Jewish history. And, and besides the establishment of the Jewish state, I think the miracle of Soviet Jewry was the greatest breakthrough. I was expelled from there. I was expelled from there at the end because the Olympic Games, Australia boycotted the Olympic Games, actually beaten up and, and arrested on charges of espionage. They had no need to play up to me anymore. But... Fortunately, I was expelled and told I'd never come back again. A few years later, in Hungary, at a World Jewish Congress meeting, which I attended, the chief rabbi of Hungary, the chief rabbi of the Soviet Union, who was a KGB extension, I mean, from that particular synagogue, appointed and controlled by the KGB, invited me to come to the Soviet Union on Rosh Hashanah and said I could have the pulpit and say what I wanted. I went with my wife for what was the most memorable occasion that I'll never forget on Rosh Hashanah, for the first time, we had refuseniks coming into a synagogue, which was a KGB operation. And in my broken Yiddish, I spoke to the audience and told them about Israel and about Aliyah. And that led four or five laters, the beginning, it, was a, it was actually the beginning of Perestroika. I was one of the first to come back and say, Gorbachev means it. And I was dismissed. My friends, many of my friends here in Israel said it didn't work. They were wrong. And the, my last success there was establishing the first Jewish cultural center in Moscow, the Solomon Michal Center, which was a great international event. So my years with Soviet Jewry were quite transformational. So Soviet Jewry is also about anti-Semitism. It was a country. Of course, that, it was a country that was a jail. It was a, it it was was a type a jail. of jail. So. It, it, uh, I don't think you don't think you can appreciate the extent of what a real anti-Semite is till you encounter it in <clears> Russia. Well, that's one of the great extraordinary experiences I have today. It's, it's a miracle to find a KGB man like uh, uh, Putin who runs the country today but is not necessarily hostile to Jewish on the contrary. He's even friendly towards Jews. I don't say that we should be relying upon him, but when you look at the background and the history, that also is an extraordinary achievement. Issy, that uh, past of anti-Semitism was very raw. Everybody knew it. There was a very clear enemy, the Soviet Union. You know, it was, it was, in some ways, it was an easy time because you knew exactly who the bad guys were and you knew who the good guys were and you knew what the mission was, to get the Jews out of there. And they left. At the end, a million Jews came out. Today, we have a more complex world. For example, the rise of anti-Semitism has been linked to anti-Israelism. It's all over Europe now. You write in your article in the New York Times about the jihad, which has broken all around us. You write with the rise of the barbaric Islamic State in Iraq and Syria or, or ISIS and the effective dissolution of national borders in the region, it would be virtually suicidal for Israel to contemplate accepting the 1949 armistice lines as the basis for permanent borders. Meaning to say, on our very borders lie people who have genocidal ideas, anti-Israel ideas, anti-Jewish ideas. Uh, they're anti-Semites in a different form. They oftentimes dress themselves cloak themselves in the guise of that they are somehow the abused nation and we're the abusers, and you couldn't say that in the Soviet Union. You have a different playing field out there. Look, anti-Semitism is undoubtedly 
the world's oldest hatred. It's endemic. It's part and parcel of the Jewish mystique. And those of us that thought that anti-Semites were an extinct species 20 years ago were proven totally wrong. And what we have here is a combination of an extraordinarily Nazi-like revision of it in the Arab world, the traditional anti-Semitism of the, of, of the secular Western world, which is deeply embedded in the culture, combined with leftism, which has kind of adopted Israel as the vehicle on which to let out all its frustrations. Put that mixture together and you have the most vicious brew, which to my mind, and here I am being radical, I believe that the days of a Jewish, meaningful Jewish life for a Jew in Europe are over. And all I can say to European Jews is consider making Aliyah now, and if you can't, at least encourage your children to do so. And I think that uh, maybe that's a radical statement coming from you or from a, you know, a major mouthpiece of, uh, of Jewish thinking. But I think a lot of people on the ground feel that way. I think French Jewry already knows that there's no yes. home for them. And I think in, in Europe in general, there's such a discomfort that, you know, the, the boot of anti-Semitism is sometimes the greatest tool of Aliyah. That's what we've seen historically. And what worries, and what worries me also is I come from Australia where anti-Semitism is virtually negligible, the United States where it's negligible, but... It's like 10 years behind the times. I see the seeds there. I really feel that a person that wants to lead a full Jewish life and hear my Zionism comes out, it can only be in Israel. And those people to whom Jewishness is meaningful should really consider, if not coming themselves, encouraging their children to be part of this great experiment and great development that we're going through in this country. Now, we just experienced a different kind of war, a war that shocked the Israeli left. And that is the, uh, we call it protective edge, the war with Hamas and Gaza. It was almost a two-month war in which it seemed as though the enemy would never let up, that the storehouse of rockets would keep going. Uh, Israel struck back hard, not super hard, not trying to destroy the enemy or uproot them, but struck back hard. But a lot of people were shocked, and there's a lot of articles coming out. They're saying that the Israeli left is falling apart. They're asking, where's liberal Zionism? Where's the Israeli left? And the reason they're asking that is because it seems that the idea of two-state solution has gone by the wayside. Why? Because Gaza was a perfect experiment. You pulled out of Gaza. You no longer controlled it. You gave uh, Gazans, a million Gazans, their own life, their own country. And yet, instead of living as two nations side by side, as was promised by the Israeli liberal establishment and liberal thinking, in the end, we got what the right-wing camp was always saying, which is, you can have a terror state next door. And it happened faster than we even expected. So the idea of two-state solution has taken a big hit. And in your article, you somehow try to um, balance those things. You say, two-state is, is, is the way we conceived of it is probably finished. You admit that the Israeli left is in a little bit of uh, straits. At the same time, you're saying we still have to strive for that ideal. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, that balance. How do you strike a balance between something that you think is impossible to happen but an ideal that we should still strive for? You know, when you live in a world... Uh, you try to work within accepting the fact that politics is the art of the possible. There is no vehicle today whereby we can get a quick fix or an easy decision. But I know one thing. It would be out of the question to contemplate having a state, 
uh, under the present circumstances, a state which would inevitably become a Hamastan and which would just lead to an extension of what we have in the south right through everywhere in the borders. And the people in Tel Aviv would suddenly find that in the Habima Theatre there'd be tunnels coming up open, whatever it is. And it's just so not right on. there you're saying yeah, yeah. that's a right wing position you're saying. You're that's saying, a, that's you're saying my position. Can't... That's my position. Now, I'm still a right winger, but at the same time, here where you and I may disagree with, I cannot contemplate another few million Arabs coming into this country and becoming part of this country right. because I don't want a binational state. Much as I love to have all of Eretz Israel, my view is if we are going to absorb these people, we have to ultimately, we can stand on our heads. It's absolute nonsense to say otherwise. Ultimately, they'll get the vote. 40%, 35%, it doesn't have to be a majority. Mm-hmm. It'll become a binational state. That is my nightmare. And that's why I say some other solution. If not a state, it may be a state. But then it would be a state under our terms, which has never been contemplated before. Complete control by us militarily. That's where I make no concessions for. And demilitarize and no Hamas, and a genuine peace partner. Now, I don't think that's going to be on the cards for a long time, the foreseeable future. But at the same time, I don't want to start talking like some of my right-wing mates say, now's the time to take it all. I don't want to have another few million Arabs. We're having enough problems with the 20% we've got here. 40% will make this a binational state. That's my argument against. It's not for. It's, it's for a Jewish state. It's not against. I understand what you're saying 100%. And yet... That means that you're just saying there's a status quo and we have to keep going with it. And it's not pleasant to have a status quo, but sometimes a status quo is much better than a quick fix, which means our disaster. We had a quick fix in Gaza and in many of the other areas. I'm against quick fixes. And the Bennett idea of annexing Area C only, which has a... That will come. Mm -hmm. By the way, that will come because I'm saying that I say that we have to cling to the commitment that was made by uh, President Bush as far as the major settlement blocks is concerned, and that means effectively we should be building up in those areas for all we've got. And yet in your article, though, you say that the announcement last week of new construction in Gush Etzion, which you admit yes. is part of consensus, you say was utterly irresponsible. Is that a New York Times Absolutely, edit, and I'll or? tell you why. Not because the building was irresponsible, the, the timing of the announcement. Who needs these bloody announcements? Get out there, mm-hmm. build, construct, develop the land, but don't make announcements. And there's another factor. This announcement had a political tinge to it, which was stupid. It was done for domestic purposes, to prove that we're tough. And to say, on top of that, we're doing this in response to terrorism, to hell with it. We're building up this country, not in response to terrorism. We're building up this country because this is our country, and we're going to build it up. So what I'm saying is, concentrate on the areas that we're going to keep. Don't make announcements and build. Now, you also said uh, a phrase that a little bit perturbed me. It said that the foundations for proceeding towards a two-state solution which the vast, here's the word, vast majority of Israelis endorse, uh, will have been restored if we follow certain precepts. And I looked into the statistics a little bit, and it was interesting, about 67% of Israelis, according to a recent Haaretz poll, uh, are in favor of a two-state solution. And that is not vast. But interestingly enough... That is vast. That's two-thirds nearly. Okay. 55% is a majority. Uh, 51% is a majority. (laughs) But uh, the word vast, you know. But then the next thing, this was the interesting part. It says, 
it says there was uh, some reservations about this poll. It said, actually, when the implications of partition, of the specifics of an agreement were presented to the respondents, quote, the establishment of a Palestinian state within the 67 boundaries with border modifications, most of the settlements to be annexed to Israel, Jerusalem to be divided with no return of refugees, support for two state plummeted to 35%. Right. Meaning to say people don't really know what we, say, what we mean when we say two state. I think that's correct. And my mean, I don't want to see Jerusalem divided okay. with a two-state or without a two-state. It should never be divided. And I've always said that. What about Jerusalem Arabs? They have residency. This okay. is a terribly complicated problem, which I can't give you an answer on the spot. If we had a peaceful Arab minority, we could find lots of solutions. But I'm not going to try and micro-wave uh, and micro-control and give you answers on, on those things now. It's not... Mati Friedman, who is an author and a reporter, he was in studio here a few weeks ago, and he said to me in his article, he also wrote that one of the narratives that you can construct Israel in the broader Middle East is that Israel is one of the minorities, like a Christian minority, like the Yazidis, like the Copts, like the many various minorities that live in the Middle East who are under attack by jihad. Those minorities, like the Kurds, who have arms, like the Jews— can protect themselves, defend themselves, and, and push off uh, the, the wave of jihad. But those who are not armed, uh, they will be swallowed up. Do you agree with that assessment? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Totally. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about the jihad that's brewing around us. Is there any way to, you know, we, we used to talk I about think peace the, partners. The important thing is to try to get through two things. First of all, that Hamas, Hamas and ISIS are one and the same. Secondly, that Abbas is Hamas with a nice sugar coating at the moment because a man who idolizes mass murderers, who pays out state pensions to them and does all of these things is not a peace partner. And the big mistake in our Hasbara over the last 10 years is we have been forced and had our hands twisted to say he's a peace partner, knowing fully well that this man looks is smart enough to know that not by terrorism, by negotiation and by pressing us diplomatically, he can get go further. The point we have not made is that the Palestinian society, and here I'm going to say something quite radical, I consider that Palestinian society has many, many parallels to Nazi society in the sense that the Germans were the most enlightened Europeans in the world and the Palestinians may be the most enlightened in the world, in, in, in the Arab world. But after Arafat and Abbas indoctrination in hatred, they have turned into a criminal society. And such a criminal society makes it very, very difficult for us to come to terms. Until we get, they have a leadership there that's going to turn the clock back the way they did in Germany, we have very little uh, prospects of a genuine, peaceful relationship. Now, we've been talking about things that are on the ground. We've been talking about solutions. We've been talking about Arabs and Jews in the Middle East. But there is always another war. I, I say now that Israel always fights at least on two fronts. And the second front is what I call the narrative warfare. And that narrative warfare is in the newspapers. It's on the pages of the New York Times. It's also on campuses. It's also in the television. It's how Israel is perceived. 
And the perception of Israel, and I think Israelis are very shocked by that, is very different than the reality. We think of ourselves as the good guys of the region. And somehow we've been, managed to be painted as the bad guys of the region. And in America, as you were talking about the seeds uh, of future generations looking at things, at Israel and Jews differently. There's a, growing, uh, there's a growing dislike of Israel because of the narrative that people are hearing. Is there any way to heal that narrative rift between our reality and their perception? I think the fault, and that's what I said beforehand, if we would have been upfront with the fact that this is just not two people fighting over land, because it's not over two people fighting over sovereignty, it's over our sovereignty. It's over the Arab world, the Muslim world, determined that there should be no Jewish sovereignty here. Now, if the world, if we can communicate that to the world and communicate the fact that we are facing a criminal society, then those pictures that are they've been built up against us, would not have the same effect. Although I must tell you, when you have a media which is so biased that in a war it has been presenting the images day in and day out of Palestinian children the way they have, you can understand that emotionally, rationality goes down the tubes. People react emotionally. Ooh, terrible. They don't realise the extent that we are the most, the most, the most extraordinary army in the world when it comes to taking care and minimising it, but we are being held up as war criminals. It's, it's part of the Jewish dilemma. It's part of anti-Semitism. It's, it's, Israel has, in a sense, become the same way as the Jew was in the Middle Ages, the centre of all evil. The problem from the, from the Jews in the Middle Ages, they brought the plagues. They brought everything down upon them. Today, it's Israel, which the majority of Europeans consider as being more dangerous to peace than North Korea and Iran. We have to fight against it, but it's not easy. And it's, we have to be strong. And that's, that's definitely something I am trying to always broadcast. Issy Libler is a former senior vice president of the World Jewish Congress. He's a columnist for the Jerusalem Post and Israel Hayom. He uh, was also the executive, uh, uh, the president of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. And he also was incredibly instrumental in bringing Soviet Jewry out. We only have a few minutes, Issy. Um, I want to ask you. What turns you on right now in Israel? We talked a lot about the darkness. We talked a lot about the, the forces against us and having to be strong. Look, I've got children, grandchildren here, and I look at the way they're growing up in this country, and that says to me, I know that Australia, where I come from, is a beautiful country and a beautiful Jewish community, but when I look at what I see in Israel and I feel I'm part of this country, it's a blessing. We are part of the blessed generation. We are the most blessed generation the generation which has been empowered with strength and can look after itself and defend itself. And for that, it's a great blessing. And I count and thank God every day I think of it. And living in Jerusalem is uh, not too Marvelous. bad for... The center of the Jewish universe. And, and, but it's not always perceived that way, is it? It's not yet perceived that way. The folks in the diaspora in the United States and Australia, they still don't always get it. They, they don't have that boot of anti-Semitism to get them thinking that way. And culturally, we're very divided. We, we're divided by great oceans and great uh, distances. Not always do we understand one another in each other's lives. My feeling is that what we're facing in the Jewish world is assimilation. And the distancing from Israel is primarily a reflection of the assimilatory process. You'll find that committed Jews, by and large, are as positive and as committed to Israel as they've ever been. But there's a vast gulf of assimilation. When you look at the intermarriage in the United States and in the Western world, when you see that more than, more than something like 60% of, of Jews are marrying out, when you look at the numbers in, 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 in some of these institutions, 
are the majority are people who have not even gone through the conversions of con- of reform and, and and conservative. They're just they're just interfaith marriages, and their children don't understand anything about Israel. Many of them, and uh, it's a it's a sad reflection. We have to get as many Jews to Israel now, while we have Jews still active, and build up this country because that's where the future of this of of our people rests. Issy Liebler, I want to join, thank you so much for joining me in studio here in the Voice of Israel studios in Jerusalem. Uh, you are a prolific writer and intellectual working in the Jewish world. Uh, you've written an article in the New York Times, which you've told me basically has uh, left-wingers angry that a right-winger has posted in the New York Times, and, and right-wingers angry that you're still calling for a two-state solution, and everybody yes. angry at the New York That's Times. Good. That's a good sign. You're on the side of the angels when both sides are attacking you. <laughs> side of the angels. I never heard that. Is that an Australian expression? But in any case, I want to thank you so much for joining us in studio today and wish you the best of luck and continued success. Thank you. Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed that segment with Issy Liebler. Very interesting discussion. And the issue is, how is Israel going to move forward? But you know what? We know our stuff. Our guests know our stuff. But I want to hear what you know and what you think. So please write me an email, yeshai at voiceofisrael.com or tweet me at yeshai Fleischer or Facebook me, or Facebook VOI Israel. VO Israel, that is exactly where we're broadcasting from. And you know what? No matter what, we are moving forward. The dream is here, and you could be part of it. You are part of it when you're connected, and especially when you're connected to this radio station, which is trying so hard to broadcast the light and the awesome magic and the strength that is coming out of Israel. Indeed, my friends, there are many people who want to slow us down, want to stop us. They got all kinds of anti-creative ideas out at ISIS and Hamas. We're not going to let them. We are going to survive. We're going to thrive. I'm Israel Chai. Stay tuned. More great stuff is on the way. Blessings from Jerusalem and Shalom. Shalom.